This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. Some guy in the back jumped up and went, it was you. You broke up the Beatles. (laughs) And I said, no, I didn't. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures, our more fragile moments, are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. To introduce today's guest, I just want you to go on a little journey with me and imagine it's February 1964. In the past year, John F. Kennedy has been assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the I Have a Dream speech. Sidney Poitier is about to make history, winning Best Actor Academy Award. And the Beatles have just landed in America to the frenzy. And across the pond in the UK, a 19-year-old who looks suspiciously like Austin Powers, or rather Austin Powers looks suspiciously like him, is releasing his first number one single. And his name is Peter Asher. He's one half of the duo Peter and Gordon. And the song, written by Paul McCartney, is A World Without Love. Now, Peter and Gordon would only make music together for a few years, and then Peter would go on to become one of the most influential music executives, figures, producers, and managers in modern music history, working with the likes of James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Cher, and of course, the Beatles, among many, many others. For me, Getting to talk to Peter in this context is interesting because he's one of my most important mentors. And I got a masterclass every day from Peter because whatever he did was based on decades of experience working with the greatest artists on the planet. So getting to talk to him about moments of self-doubt or failure is maybe the most delicious privilege of the podcast experience for me thus far. Not because Peter's going to be able to mention a lot of failures, because I don't think that's who he is. It's more getting to have that kind of conversation with someone that successful is important, because what it illustrates is that even people at the highest, highest, highest altitude have these moments where they go, did I fuck something up? So I'm so excited to talk to you today, Peter, to give people this perspective and have you share a little bit more about your less elegant, perfect moments. And I'm really excited that you're willing to do this, which I think is probably hard for you, but thank you for being here on Yeah, I Fucked That Up. You were a philosophy student 
when yes. you started? Well, at, at London University, yes. I went to Westminster School, which is sort of the equivalent of high school. And then, then I went to King's College, London University, studying philosophy. One of your favorite philosophers, Wittgenstein, said if people never did silly things, nothing intelligent would ever get done. That's a good quote. What's the difference between silly things and failures? Well, it depends how they do. I mean, some silly things turn out to be huge successes. You never know. I think silly things are a result, though. And I think what Wittgenstein probably meant is that to do silly things means taking chances. And it's hard to make something great without taking chances. But do you think that sometimes the best results have come from chances, unexpected chances? Yes. Like, we'll mic up the cowbell in a bathroom stall type Things. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think being willing to experiment and to right. try things you haven't done before is very important, of course. The timing of events to someone listening to this is really to take into account that you're growing up in music and culture the whole way through. I grew up in a very musical household. My mother was a classical musician. Right. She was oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music. So she was deeply steeped in music. So I listened to music all the time. My father was an amateur pianist as well as a doctor and a big Gilbert Sullivan fan and a whole other, all kinds of other music. So music surrounded me forever. And then I discovered rock and roll. When you look back as, as a kid, when you would make a mistake or a failure, or you, maybe you didn't achieve what you wanted, how did it work in your family? How did it work with your parents? They were incredibly tolerant. When I think back on it, the fact that they let us take up acting when I was eight and my sister Jan was six because we thought it sounded cool, you know, we, we just jumped at the chance and our parents let us. Later on, when I quit school to be a pop star, you know, I, into my second year at university, we had a number one record. And in England, they don't actually let you leave and come back like they do in America. There's no credits. We don't have that system. So you're supposed to start, do your three years, get your degree. So finally, I, I had, when we had this number one record, I went to the head of the philosophy department, had a meeting and explained to him what had happened, that they were very anxious. <laughs> what <for> had happened? <laughs> <laughs> the record went to number one, and they wanted us to come to America. And he did finally give me a one-year leave of absence right. to go and get this nonsense out of my system. And, and of course, I'm tragically still on that leave of absence. And, so on an academic level, I suppose uh, that's a mistake right there. But didn't they give you an honorary degree at this point? No, they did not. No. I've got one from some other university, but but, <laughs> but London University, no, I haven't heard from them since. Whether they're still holding a place for me, I couldn't say, but I rather doubt it. So I'm going to skip a step and jump ahead when you're doing A&R for Apple Records, which was the Beatles record company. You already lived the life of a pop star, right? You got a number one on the charts with Peter and Gordon, and then you discover you have these other skill sets. When you think back to it, did you have imposter syndrome at any point when you started that role? It's funny you should mention that. Yes, all the time. I still do. But only in the sense of, you know, wondering, do I really know what I'm doing? When will I get caught out? That version of imposter syndrome, which now has a name, but, you know, I think that happens a lot to everybody. And it certainly happened to me because becoming a record producer was something I knew I wanted to do the very first day I was in the studio as an artist. Peter and Gordon's first session. Once I saw that there was this job where you got to hire great musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do and try out ideas and, you know, make changes in songs and suggest things to the artist, I thought, what a great job is that, you know, how incredibly cool. So basically I kind of went, okay, I'm a record producer. And of course the subtext of that is, well, am I really, you know, Mm -hmm. do, do I know what I'm doing? And it's worth pointing out that now, if you want to be a record producer, of course, you can 
sit on your laptop in your bedroom and make a track right. and, and record it and, and say to someone, look, I'm a record producer, listen to what I can do. Back then, without an artist and without a band and without a studio, you couldn't even try. So it, was, it really was based on being nervy enough to kind of go, okay, I'm going to produce you. I'll tell you what to do. You right. know? So, yeah, that was fraught with uncertainty and self-doubt at the same time, of course. What was the first record you ever produced? First record I ever produced was with somebody called Paul Jones. Do you remember Paul Jones? Yeah. The lead singer of Manfred Mann. There she was just walking down right. the street. That guy. He had watched me on some Peter and Gordon sessions, at which I was not the producer, but I was just the interfering artist. Right. Another role I do rather well. And he liked some of my ideas, and he was about to make his own solo album, asked me if I wanted to produce some tracks for him. I said, yes, of course, and I owe him a great debt of gratitude because that got me in the studio. So we went into EMI Studios. My very first session, I'd picked out this Bee Gees song that I thought could be a hit called And the Sun Will Shine. And I put together a, a band for this first session. I wanted to take no chances on having a good rhythm section. So I asked my friend Paul Samuel Smith, who was one of my best friends at the time, who was the bass player in the Yardbirds, also went on to be a great producer himself, by the way, so Paul said yes. I got Nicky Hopkins to play piano, who was the best studio guy by far. I asked Paul if he could ask the guitar player in his band, this guy Jeff Beck, who was supposed to be so cool, and was, if he would come to the session as well. So Jeff Beck came and played on it. And finally, I asked Paul McCartney to play the drums. Because I figured if I asked him to play the bass, that was kind of obvious. Right. But I love his drumming. So he played drums on it. So it was a good band. When you went in, and you think as a producer of your moment of failure, obviously that was a successful casting that you did. It was, but one. it wasn't a hit record. It, it bubbled into the charts and bubbled out again, sadly. I still think it, it sounds pretty good though, still, but it wasn't a hit. So in that sense, it was a mistake. Did you ever produce a record where you like threw your hands up and walked out and said, I, I can't? The hardest one I ever did was a record with Maria McKee, which again was very disappointing and I'd look upon it as my mistake because She's such a wonderful singer, you know. Do you remember Maria McKee? She was in, what was the band, Lone Justice, I think, and then went solo. Very, very good singer. Had mm. at least one big hit. And it was a song for a movie. Show Me Heaven, right? Yes. And we just couldn't get it right, I, I think. And she, she didn't like what I was doing and wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do. And in the end, it actually was number one record in England. But I didn't regard it as a successful session because if the artist isn't happy, it's not a winner. Do you think that that's your number one criteria for what is successful or what isn't? No. You can have a... I think, I, I still think the public is the ultimate judge, you know. Mm. And there have been some records where you finish it and you go, if this isn't a hit, you know... I'm moving to uh, Tibet. <laughs> exactly, because right. it yeah. just sounds like a hit record. I remember when we finished the Linda record of You're No Good, yeah. which is the opposite of a mistake. When you actually finish something, you go, this is a winner, you know? <laughs> but when you do that, um, you do this record with Linda Ronstadt, and you just know, in a world without data, insights, did you ever walk into a room and say, this is the hit? And they're like, no. I mean, I've made some records where we couldn't get it quite right, perhaps. What is your list? What are those failures? Well, for example, I was, I was thinking about that. One of the ways a record can be a failure is if the artist isn't completely happy. And if it, particularly if it's a great artist, I mean, an, an amazingly important artist, and it isn't successful, you know, you do question yourself very profoundly. I did a record with Billy Joel. I was a big Billy Joel fan. He's an amazing pianist and singer and, of course, a great songwriter. And it was a project 
that came to me from Donny Ina. And Donny Ina never liked me particularly. For whatever reason, we, we didn't quite hit it off. I admired Donny enormously, but we, we didn't quite hit it off. But somebody was suggesting, and I think he originally had the idea, that we, Billy Joel record the Bob Dylan song, To Make You Feel My Love. Mm. Great song. So I think probably against his initial instinct, Donny ended up asking me to do it. And it just never worked. And that, you, you know, I remember being in the studio filled with self-doubt because I cast the rhythm section and it had some great players and Billy played on it great. Donnie had some ideas. I wanted to take it completely away from Bob Dylan, mm. make it not sound like a Bob Dylan song, make it sound totally like a pop song, which it is, and did a version that heading in that direction Billy was going, no, it needs to have like a harmonica solo. And, you know, he was still thinking Bob Dylan in his head. Right. And I wasn't. And Donnie was kind of going, I don't know, you know, Peter Asher isn't the right guy. And, you know, I just felt terrible because somehow he didn't juggle the people correctly or juggle the musical ideas correctly. So we ended up with multiple different mixes and arguments. And it came out and it wasn't a hit. But that's a case where you got one of the greatest songwriters in American history a yeah. great singer, a great piano player, everything's good, biggest record company right. in the world, and you get it wrong. Yeah. I felt awful. Yeah. And that's where it overlaps with imposter syndrome because it also makes you go, do I even know how to do this? You know, right. How did I screw this up? Right. Well, there's nothing like getting a bunch of the greatest gourmet chefs in a room to make chicken broth and you just wind up with chicken shit, you know, because exactly. everybody's putting their secret ingredients. We should have like, just ordered out, right? <laughs> Order from the deli down the street. Right. Exactly. I mean, ironically, that song is so elegant and simple that that sounds to me maddening. Yeah. No, and I was, I was maybe going overly pop. I wanted to put strings on it, you know, and all this stuff, make it completely like Bob Dylan wrote that. All right, so... You leave that record, and in terms of other moments in recording where it didn't go your way. Well, when you're working with a super major artist and you really want to do it justice, I mean, like Bonnie Raitt, I love the album we did together, but at the same time, I'm such a Bonnie fan. I think she's such a treasure and such a genius singer and an underrated guitarist. I don't think we got the album quite right, and I'm still not sure whether... We didn't pick the right songs. We didn't pick the right band. She's singing great. But, you know, it was only a year or two later, Don Was got it right. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. he made the record that made Bonnie a household name. Right. I didn't, you know, and that's a failure. I'm proud of the record we made. Working with Bonnie was a pleasure. But at the same time, I wish I'd pulled off what Don pulled off, which is making the album that suddenly... Wow, Bonnie Raitt, right. she's been around forever. Now we realize she's genius. Right. She gets a billion Grammys and takes over right, the world, right. which is where she belongs. Right. And Don Was did that, not me. Right. So part of it's jealousy. Part of it is a feeling that maybe I screwed up. Do you think jealousy is an expression of failure? Well, yes. It's a recognition of failure. Is right. it? If you're jealous of someone, they've got something you want, which is not necessarily a bad thing. As long as you can be jealous and still like the person. I mean, jealousy can be congratulatory as well. So going into the 70s, because we can't skip over James Taylor. Right. Because James Taylor is, in many respects, I think you'd agree, the foundation of your evolution from artist, songwriter, producer to manager. Yes. Because you were doing all of them. Yes. And, and it's interesting, perhaps, to note that being a producer and a manager were entirely different because being a producer was an ambition, nothing to do with James. It was ambition that, as I say, right. happened the very first day I was in the studio. Never occurred to me that I would be a manager. 
until James and I left Apple. You know, I'd signed him to Apple when I first heard him because I thought he was amazing. And luckily, the Beatles agreed with me and, and we signed him. But then when Apple started to fall apart, and I thought that we should get off the label, which we did because we didn't like Alan Klein and so on. We left. And at that point, it was clear that James needed a manager. And I kind of said, well, shall I do it? And I think that was based on Brian Epstein because I realized that Brian was running a record shop when he the same right. thing happened. He heard the Beatles and thought they were the best band he'd ever heard. I heard James thought this is the best at the time, folk singer, by the yeah. way, is what they all were, not yeah. singer-songwriter. The term didn't exist. And if you were acoustic guitar, long hair, yeah. folk singer. Didn't yeah. matter if you never sang a folk <laughs> song. And anyway, I thought James was one of the best guitar players, best singers, best songwriters I'd ever heard. And I realized that Brian's success was based on his utter confidence in how good the Beatles were and his, his love for them and his determination that they should make it. And I figured, to be honest, I had all those attributes. So, right. so I said to James, you know, I'll do it. And he said, great. And I was a manager. Right. I think back to how many women you have represented and worked with, particularly during the, frankly, the cultural shift, too slow cultural shift in power for women artists to be able to define their voice, how they're received as, you know, a woman of power. Yeah. What was that experience like? Is there something that you think about in terms of with, I mean, there's so many women you've worked with. The first, the key female artist in my life was and is Linda Ronstadt, because when I first met her, I was just so amazed by everything about her. I mean, I was, she was playing at the bitter end in New York and I was there and somebody said, you have to go down and see this girl. She's one of the greatest singers you've ever heard in your life. Plus, she's just amazing in every way. She sings barefoot in these really short shorts and looks spectacular, sings like an angel. And I went down to see her and it was all true. And then I discovered in meeting her that she's ridiculously smart and, and brilliant and thoughtful and well-read and, you know, just a terrific human being in every respect. So... And yes, I did find, particularly in that era, she had already been subjected to a lot of don't you worry your pretty little head about that mm. method of discussion or method of management as mm. well. And I had heard that she was difficult or could be difficult, and she wasn't at all. It was really was a case that nobody was listening to her. And if you actually took the time to ask what she thought and what her take on things were, you'd be a million times better off than starting off the conversation by going, here's what we're going to do. You know? mm. So I did try to adjust my behavior in, in the sense of making sure I always asked Linda first what we were trying to accomplish and how she wanted to do things and then put together a plan and execute it. Mm. So, yes, I don't know why it is that I've ended up working with some remarkable women, as you say, Cher and Natalie Merchant and Linda and and Barney, and all these incredibly amazing women. I'll tell you one, one quick story. I was doing the 10,000 Maniacs album, Natalie Merchant being one of my favorite singers in the world, and mm. we were up in a studio in the country in upstate New York somewhere. I'm in the control room working on a guitar solo with the guitar player, Rob, and the rest of the band are outside in the lounge where Natalie is too. And the phone rings, and Natalie picks up the phone. A woman's voice asks for me, and Natalie says, he's in the studio working on a guitar solo at the moment. 
is this important and urgent? Should I interrupt him or, or should he call you back? To which the response was, this is Cher, you decide. <laughs> that says so much about her and it's such a brilliant story. Natalie loved it, of course. And from then on, every time Natalie asked a question, whether it was like somebody asked Natalie what she wanted for lunch, it was like, this is Natalie, you decide. <laughs> but it shows a degree of confidence that is fascinating and sums up Cher in a brilliant way. She's extraordinary. She's amazing. There's also a period where you managed, I mean, you've represented Courtney Love. I did for a bit, yes. And, and, was, uh, yes. and Pamela Anderson. So, yes, yes. Uh, both of whom have become iconic women in their own right with yeah. their own stories. During the years that you worked with these women, what are the failures, maybe whether you've made them or that you saw other people make? That's a tough one. I mean, Pamela and, and Courtney obviously are very different because... They're, in some ways, in, in, even in Courtney's case, the, her celebrity is separate from her music. You know, they, they become separate things. And Pamela has a unique career. You know, just being Pamela Anderson as a sheer act of existence is, is an extraordinary career. I can't think of special mistakes. I mean, I'm sure we made some. Did you give Courtney or Pamela advice? How did those relationships come about? Yeah, Pamela wanted help sorting some things out. We, we, it began because we were neighbors in, right. in Malibu and started chatting in the street and became friends. And I helped her sort out some deals she was involved in and helped her with some career stuff. And with Courtney Love? Well, she was tricky because, you know, she was changeable, you know, and, uh, but very smart. How so changeable? How so? Her mood, you know, some days she would be enthusiastic about something and other days it might be angry and, or she'd decide tons of people on the internet stealing our money or whatever it was. She would concentrate on some thing that might not be as exactly what she right. thought. Is there a moment when you managed Courtney where you were like, I fucked up by doing this in the first place or? Well, with Courtney, you would worry that you'd got something wrong because there did seem to be some things going wrong. So I was continually second-guessing whether I could have handled something differently. I liked her, as I say, and she's smart, and we would have some good conversations. But then later on, she'd suddenly be up all night and phone you in the morning with a whole bunch of new concerns. So, yeah, I don't think I got it perfectly right. Is there, over the course of years working with different artists, a recurring nightmare like that thing that keeps you up at night? Is there like a, you know, sort of a dangling thread? If I've learned anything useful, it is, you know, to above all, to listen to the artists and, mm. you know, to make sure their ideas are part of the mixture. And I wouldn't want to fail in that regard. So there is this myth that you somehow contributed to the breaking up of the Beatles. Yes. It, it, well, let me put it this way. In my show... There's a show which is half storytelling, half songs. I include in it John Lennon, a video of John talking about when he came to Indica. Indica was an art gallery that I started with a couple of friends. We had an art gallery and a bookshop. I was more involved in the bookshop, actually. But one of the early exhibitions at the art gallery was Yoko. John Dunbar, who ran the gallery, had read about her and thought she sounded cool and asked her to come to an exhibition. She said yes. And we used to... Before the opening, we would sometimes have to do a friends and family pre-opening evening when people could come down and look at the stuff. And we, at that point, our friends and family list included the Beatles. So we invited all of them. John came. So when I play this video of John saying, I went to 
this gallery opening at Indica, and that's where we met, he says. And as soon as he says that, there's a very interesting reaction from the audience because sometimes they go, ah, like love story. Uh Sometimes they go, ooh, you know. And then finally one place, and this is amazing, some guy in the back jumped up and went, it was you, you broke up the Beatles. (laughs) And I said, no, I didn't. I did not. I played a role in John meeting Yoko. And Yoko's role, Yoko's relationship with John is one of a million reasons that may have contributed to the Beatles breaking up. But I would blame Alan Klein far more than I'd blame Yoko. So, And Yoko's kind of cool and was actually ahead of her time and, you know, in many ways. So... I don't believe that to be true. I do not accept any responsibility for breaking out the Beatles, okay. just for the record. But, but yes, that allegation has been suggested. Okay, take me to the scene. Were you there in the moment, or it was just... No, I was not there in the moment, no. I think John Dunbar actually said, this is Yoko, this is John. I didn't make the introduction physically, but my invitation contributed to it. If you had a time machine, would you do more to reduce the blame on Yoko? I think history will do that eventually. She's a remarkable woman. It it was odd, you know. And for the Beatles, when she wanted to be in the studio all the time, that was odd because they you got to remember, the Beatles were northern lads, you know. Mm. Their experience of wives and mothers was that they stayed home in the kitchen. They didn't go to work, you know. They didn't go to their husband's workplace. Right. You know, they had dinner on the table when... The husband gets home from work, you know. It was a very traditional British, especially Northern England, working class thing. So she wasn't playing the role of girlfriend or wife in any way they'd ever seen before. Plus the fact that I think it's easy to forget that a culturally mixed relationship was also... Yeah, that's true. I don't think people look at that. No. And was that mentioned during the time at all? I don't remember that being mentioned, but undoubtedly it was was a factor, of course, yes. I I have a couple questions about your fascination with comedians. Obviously, Steve Martin being a significant personal friend and and a great musician, by the way. My first introduction to him was banjo like not knowing he was a comedian i was yeah. a little kid he's a great um, banjo player yeah. amazing mm-hmm. um but robin williams i remember because you were producing that album yeah for such a brilliant guy how do you look back on that relationship now uh i miss him primarily when i look back upon it because he was of course one of the most brilliant people i ever brilliant. knew and i would very much enjoy long conversations that we would have and, and dinners or whatever because he was such a brilliant and yet somewhat obsessive person. I mean, you know, when he would take up bike riding, which he was very good at, he suddenly had a storm of like 50 bicycles, you mm-hmm. know, because he'd see some incredible new French special bike and have to have one right away. And, you know, just his approach to something like that, which is in most people is a hobby. And suddenly it was like bicycles, you know, right. full on. And he would go out biking with like Olympic bicyclists. And, right. And I, I quote that only as an example of the fact that he, whatever he was doing, he was full on, you know. Mm. And occasionally, of course, he would go into sort of full Robin mode and it was spontaneous, instant genius and, and fascinating. I miss that a lot. What are the mistakes you see young managers 
making, or not just young managers, but managers in general and producers making? Management now is so different because how you break an artist has become so different. If you're going pop, it's one thing. If you're going as a live performer building a reputation, because suddenly you hear about this band selling out arenas or something around right. the country, and, and I go, who are they? I've never heard of them. You know, and they're not on the radio, but they've just literally built up a fan base in very old-school style. And then if it's pop... It's entirely different. You know, right. you make this one record, you get all these incredibly brilliant, expensive people to do different mixes and put it out mm. to different this and different, right. you know, and I watch all that stuff. I go, well, you know, I have a lot to learn. But I, I'm more talking in some ways behaviorally. You could do it at any era. Do you look at certain managers or people in the business and you think, if I could tell you the top three things don't do as a manager, these are those things. They'd be cheesy, simple things if you don't lie to the artist, you know. When you do make it, don't be horrible to everyone, you know, because right. there's no reason to be. Right. Be sympathetic, be understanding, be smart, think before you speak. I don't know. They'd be things like that, not specific show business right. things, but just right. don't behave like a shit, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even uh, if you can, you know, even when you can get away with it. What do you tell your daughter when she has had her own frail moments what is the advice you give her think things through don't act rashly you know and then the advice parents have always given about this is not the end of the world i, I know he doesn't feel that with this way now but give this time wh whatever hurt you're feeling from the way someone's treated you or whatever it will wear off mm. you know and it's it's their fault not yours and stuff like that there's no worse feeling than, than when your child is sad and you not aren't sure what to do about it but, again, the traditional assurance is that we will be there for you regardless, mm -hmm. you know, and to say that and mean it and act that way, I think is the best you can do. I couldn't agree more. The best you can do is be there for your kids regardless of the situation. Before we go, one final music question. Was, was there ever anything that was really fucked up in the studio on some record that you were making that turned out to be the greatest blessing? Well... On You No Good, to go back to that, there was a piece of equipment that was broken that we fell in love with. It, there was this weird, it was like some kind of disc delay device that Neumann made. And uh, Andrew Gold and I had seen it in the wall of stuff. Kind of going, what is that? It looks cool. And they went, no, it's broken. You know, it doesn't work. And finally we said, really? It looks so cool. We have to try that, you know. And it was on part of the guitar solo and you know good we went we finally said please just plug it in let's see what you know maybe it's somebody fix it and it and it was all broken and wobbly was what the problem was right. so if you tried to use it as a regular reverb it was hopeless right but it had this weird wobbling to it you know that was clearly the disc was fucked up in some way right. and we went that's it you know <laughs> keep that and so one of the guitar parts in you know good is is through a piece of equipment that was allegedly unusably broken <laughs> but turned out to be exactly what we needed and so that does happen sometimes and can never be replicated again. i can never be replicated <laughs> right god knows what happened to it i'm sure there's like a plug-in now that's like I bet. The, you're no good setting <clears throat> right the, the broken <laughs> neumann disc delay thing yes exactly so 
two pressing questions. Are you Ed Sheeran's dad? <laughs> Absolutely not. I would be very proud if I were. But, <laughs> but uh, no, Ed Sheeran's a great friend. And it is odd how there are some pictures where I do look like an old version of Ed or vice versa. Right. And we are both redheads, of course, and both wear glasses. So there's a couple of pictures where it is a bit odd, but I'm absolutely not. I know his, his both his parents, right. <laughs> and, and they're great friends of Wendy's and mine, and we love them dearly. And are you the inspiration for Austin Powers? Uh, yes and no. No in the sense that the character of Austin Powers is based on a number of people. Apparently the DJ, Simon D., who was uh -huh. a very cool man about town in that era in the 60s, was one of the inspirations. But... As far as the appearance of Austin Bowers goes, there are a couple of photos of me that specifically were his inspiration. So why he decided that the International Man of Mystery should have bad teeth and Buddy Holly glasses, I do not know. <laughs> but it's not what you necessarily instinctively go to when deciding on the look of your master spy. But that's what he decided. And uh, I've talked to him, and it, it is the case, that there's a couple of specific photos that he went, that's what Austin Powers should look like. <laughs> and they used that design. And, of course, in my case, I did have the bad teeth and had them fixed when I got to America <laughs> in the 60s. But if you look at some early Peter and Gordon album covers, you will see Austin Powers' teeth. <laughs> um, I'm hitting my formal thank you and goodbye, but I did want to say... Making records with you is just one of the greatest learning experiences of my professional life. And I, beyond grateful for you giving me the time, which is the most key thing, it's also that people can hear the voice of someone who's really been so tremendously successful in so many areas. And I think my takeaway, actually, is I don't think that you need to offer up failures over the course of a long career. I think it's implied and understood that they exist. Yeah. But what I also think is telling is that you don't anchor them into your life when they happen. I think over the course of decades of doing music and representing talent and working in the studio, failures are inevitable. Yeah, no, I never would want anyone to leave with the impression I'm saying I, we're no failures. There's failures all the time, you know, whether it's on a minute level or, or a macro level, you know, there's tons of failures. And the trick is to obviously to not have them happen twice, you know, to, to, to learn from what you do wrong, try to do things better next time, which I certainly do. But it, it's a move on kind of philosophy. Right. Where do you get that from? I don't know. I think the, from the ability to think. If, if there's anything I, I value or, or flatter myself in having, it's the ability to sit down and think things through and come up with a plan. And that's what I try to do mm. pretty much every day. And certainly in react to things, when things aren't going right, that's what you do. Just try to decide whether you, you know, to stop something or do it again differently or, or just say, sorry, we screwed up. Right. You know? But sometimes sorry, we screwed up is the correct answer. Yeah, that's very true. Well, thank you for being here, giving the time. My pleasure. In reflecting on Peter Asher and the stories he told, and actually the lack of volume when it came to stories he could tell about failure and self-doubt, I don't think it's because he didn't have moments of failure and self-doubt. I think it's because when you have decades of experience working with artists and markets and companies and executives, there are so many moments, human moments, that they all kind of bleed into one large journey. I am sure that if we could really go in the time machine and go back, 
and pick out those moments. There are probably a thousand situations that he encountered over the course of this span of this massive career that at the time probably felt like, wow, this is really fucked up. But in the context and the wisdom that comes with so much experience, things that seemed like massive failures are actually tiny, tiny things. And in the context of his whole body of work, it's not identifying big failures. It's more just the continuance, the ability to just keep going and to learn from each of those little moments of self-doubt or missteps. For people who are listening to this, who are going through moments of failure or they fuck something up, I actually think it's important to take Peter's context capability and apply it to yourself. Is the shit that's happening that's fucked up right now in your life going to be the headline in 50 years from now? I mean, maybe it is, but we are all going through it. And that's what this whole podcast is about for me. We catastrophize or glorify moments in our own lives every day. And this started really prompted by my kids who struggled with making mistakes on tests at school or something didn't go their way and how paralyzing it was for them and me wanting to prove to them as a dad, if you want to be successful, failure is mandatory. And Peter Asher gives this perspective that I think is probably the most important takeaway of this entire season for me. And that is keep calm and carry on. Whatever you're going through, you will fuck things up. I know I have, but those are just moments. They're not lifetimes. Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. Story producer Jesse Ash. Senior producers Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations Sarah Yu, Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development Sheffy Ellenswag, and Director of Marketing Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.